Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. Or in the case of today, your favorite military history podcast. Because we're going to fast forward a few years. We've done this once or twice in the past. We're lucky enough to have with us today a Vietnam War veteran. We will get to that interview here momentarily. But first, let me thank each and every one of you for your continued support of the little World War II-based podcast that could. As you're hearing this today, January 7th, it marks the third year anniversary. This starts year three. We launched our very first episode on January 7th, 2017. And here we are now, January 7th, 2020, and it's all because of you, because you guys share our little podcast with everybody. You come to our Facebook page, you review us on iTunes and Stitcher and all those places, and you reach out to us with interview ideas and uh, content ideas, and we want to continue to encourage you to do more of that. So if you have any ideas for the show you want to contribute, you think you can help out the cause, simply send us an email to info at WTSPWorldWar2.com. That's info at WTSPWWII.com. Or if that's too hard, you can remember info at D-410.com. That is the Digital 410 public um, everything inbox. And if you haven't done so yet, please go to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link. It's like a dollar a month. It'll cost you $12 a year. Um, that's for the lowest tier. If you want the second highest tier, it's $3.50 a month. And if you want a free t-shirt out of the deal, sign up for the $7.50 a month plan and we will send you a free t-shirt of your liking. It could be any of the t-shirts in the Digital 410 t-shirt storefront. We will send one to you after week two. And also, last but not least, please click on that Amazon link, save it to your toolbar, your desktop, anywhere, your favorites menu. And whenever you do your online Amazon shopping, please click that link first and they will send us a few coins every month. And that'll help us to provide more gear, pay for more trips, more travel, more interviews, and to continue bringing you fine content like we hope to do here in 2020. And another reason to join Patreon, if you didn't know, we have launched the Patreon-exclusive podcast, What's in Your Head podcast, with me, with me, wow, I can't talk today, with me and my brother Gordon Abernathy, and rotating host and co-host and subject matter. Episode two is up. We get into some stuff that we don't get into the public airway version of any of our podcasts. So if you need a little extra incentive to sign up for uh, the Patreon page, other than to support your favorite World War II-based podcast, it is to get access to a Patreon-exclusive podcast and a free t-shirt, as well as exclusive video content, etc., etc. On this episode of the Patreon-exclusive podcast, What's in Your Head? Do you know the length of the average podcast, as in how many episodes, before they give up? Bill and I were talking about that, and I think the average podcast fails around episode 10. What I've uh, heard recently is actually less than that, episode 7. So it's not even a magic number 7, it's like a doomed number 7. Actually, no, it wasn't Bill and I. When I was on that podcast of the gentleman, it was called What Makes You Famous with... uh, key dan he's a he used to be a dj down in key west and now he's like in kansas or something we were talking about that and he kind of took it like i was slamming other people's podcasts and it wasn't that i was trying to talk to him about um you know everybody thinks it's easy to do podcasts which yes it's easy to do a podcast but my whole point was it's hard to do consistent podcasts every week and have new original content and i was trying to use example i know personally three people who have started podcasts and they quit around episode three. To gain access to the What's in Your Head podcast, as well as all the other exclusive Patreon content, simply go to d-410.com, click on the Patreon link, and subscribe. 
Perhaps one of the craziest inventions to come out of World War II was that of Dr. Lytell S. Adams, a dentist from Philadelphia. Apparently at some point, Mr. Adams, or Dr. Adams for that matter, he took a trip down to New Mexico. And it was in New Mexico that he fell in love and was completely fascinated with the New Mexican retail bat. And so when he was down in New Mexico, he saw their abilities, he saw the things they were doing in nature, um, how well they used their hands and the objects that they were carrying in flight. And so Adams got this idea, if you will, that if you took these bats, got a large number of them, gave them essentially small bombs or grenades, and dropped them over the cities of Japan that were predominantly made up of structures that were made from bamboo, wood, paper, things of that nature, essentially these towns, these cities were very flammable. And so Adams got this crazy idea, well, why don't we get a gangload of these bats, a huge, huge number of these bats, essentially give them little bombs, drop them out of a plane, let them burn the city down, problem solved. And now, believe it or not, this crazy idea damn near came to fruition, and here's how it happened. On January 12, 1942, Adams wrote up a letter outlining his plan, and he sent it to the White House. And I know what you're thinking. Look, it's World War II. There's probably a lot of crazy people out in the country with ideas for weapons to defeat the Germans, to defeat the Nazis. And I'm sure the White House, the Army, the Air Corps, they were probably inundated with these letters. Here's how Dr. Adams got his through. Apparently, Dr. Adams knew and had a first-hand relationship with the First Lady of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt. And so he contacted her, said, hey, I wrote up this letter, I'm going to send it to you, please see that it gets seen. So she does, it did, and so President Roosevelt got Adams' letter. I don't know if how much Eleanor persuaded him, if he actually believed in the context of this letter, the content, the idea behind the idea, but he kind of gave it the initial green light. He contacted Adams and said, look, I'm going to set up a meeting with you and Colonel William J. Donovan, who was the head of wartime intelligence. Now apparently something in this meeting between Adams and Colonel Donovan worked out because the project went ahead as planned. I mean, it got greenlit. They started research and development. They went out and they collected a large number of Mexican free-tailed bats. Once they had all the bats acquired, they started developing small-scale bombs. At a certain point, through trial and error, research and development, the eggheads figured it out. They produced a 17-gram kerosene bomb that was built for the bats to carry and it was tied to their leg by a lanyard. Okay, so now we have our bats, they got their bombs, they got their grenades, whatever you want to call them. They're full of kerosene. We've got these flying little incendiary bats now. Cool. How do we deploy them? They went back to the drawing board, got the eggheads together, the engineers. And so what they did next was they built a larger bomb, but instead of a payload of dynamite, TNT, whatever you put in bombs, they filled this damn thing full of bats. And the bats had their kerosene bombs. The next problem was you had to figure out how we're going to transport this large bomb that was full of bats holding little bombs to drop on Japan and burn the whole damn place down. How do we get a bomb full of living animals from point A to point B? Apparently through technology and refrigeration and research. Bats, once they get to a certain body temperature, they go into hibernation mode. So the idea was let's take the bats, put them in the big bomb, holding their little bombs. Let's cool down the big bomb to put them in hibernation mode, strap the bomb to the plane, as it got closer to the target, they'd start to warm up the bomb, they would drop the bomb, the bomb would open up, the bats at this point were now coming out of hibernation mode, they'd fly down to the cities of Japan where they would instinctively nest in large rooftops, awnings, what have you, and then according to documentation, allegedly these little guys would chew through a lanyard, at which point would activate a timed mechanism on these little hand grenades, they would fly the coop if you will, bombs would blow up, 
Houses burnt down, we win the war, that was the idea. And it got greenlit, and it did in fact go into research and development, and they were actually working on his plan up until mid-1944, when all efforts of the plan for the bat bomb were now stopped, and all resources and scientists' manpower was sent into the Manhattan Project to help develop the atomic bomb. So that was the brief history of the bat bomb, a crazy idea that a dentist had somewhere in New Mexico, but the fact that they actually put money in research and development makes it even crazier. And that has been Crazy Ideas from World War II. And joining us via Skype today um, is a Vietnam veteran. We got all the technical issues sorted out. You figure somebody's been doing this for three years. It wouldn't be so hard. But hey, we continue to grow. Joining us on the phone, I'm sorry, joining us via Skype right now is Jim Marino. Jim, how are you doing in this beautiful 2020? We're only three days in, but uh, hopefully things are going well for you. Time is going fast for me. My you? Yeah, you know, I was thinking about that the other night. You know, I'm still, I consider myself still a younger cat. I graduated in in, uh, 1996, but I was thinking about my mom and my dad and all them. You know, they graduated in the mid-70s. I think they're probably close to your age and maybe a little bit younger. And I was thinking, you know, could you imagine, well, I'm sure you could, you were there, but I was thinking to myself, could you imagine, you know, hanging out in the 70s and thinking about 2020? Now, obviously, back then, everybody thought we were going to have the Jetsons cars and this and that and the other thing. I guess some of it delivered. We have the video telephone conferencing, and uh, we're still working on the wireless charging and, and things like that. But the idea that we're at 2020, and not too much has changed with the exception of computers and cell phone technology. Yeah, I was reading the Moore's Law the other day because I'm an engineer um, by, by schooling. And... Uh, you know, technology is – the amount of memory is doubling every uh, 10 years, was it? Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought about the fact that there's as much power in my cell phone and memory that the computers we used back in the old day, the IBM 360s, had probably less than 2K. And then you think, what, 2K, what are you talking about? It's as bad as the dial phone. You put a group of kids with a dial phone in the room. You've seen that on the internet, and they they don't know what to do with it. They think they have to punch the numbers. (laughs) Yeah, for those of you playing along at home who aren't up to speed on your megabytes and your gigabytes and your terabytes, 1,024 kilobytes is one meg. And so when he says he has 2K, that means less than one meg. And to put it in perspective, I mean, we just hit the 50th anniversary of the moon landing and and when the NASA program really blew up. Your cell phone. Nay, not today. Your cell phone you had four years ago has a faster processor, more RAM and computing power than any of the uh, equipment we use to land on the moon or to navigate around the planet. Or, you know, people get into the whole conversation of nuclear power, and then obviously Chernobyl comes up and Three Mile Island and all that. But once again, the cell phone you had five years ago had more computing power than the computers running those power plants that burnt down back, back in the day. And so technology it just it just travels so fast and, and kind of like you were saying i started an it firm 14 years ago and i really haven't raised my rates but what i've had to do is do less on sites when it comes to the residential and take all the computers back to my shop because when i started this stuff people had 250 megabyte hard drives i could scan yeah. hard drive for viruses and malware three or four times in an hour now with two terabytes, it takes me six hours to do one scan, and obviously I can't hang out at someone's house for six hours and charge them more than what their computer's worth 
And so I take it back to my shop so I can do multiple computers for a fixed rate. But yeah, and the size is just insane. I used to, uh, I probably have the numbers wrong, but uh, I remember I used to do presentations. And in, in those days, when you said ter- that the Library of Congress, it would take somewhere around two to three terabytes total for the entire knowledge of the Library of yeah. Congress. And to think about the fact that all the knowledge is on your phone if you just use Google is a, a little frightening when you think about the privacy issues that go along with this. I used to do presentations at the University of Texas, and I used to bring a bag of slide rules and hand them out to all the students. They usually were the, you know, the elite engineering class of, uh, of, of the university, and I'd hand out the, the slide rules, and I'd teach them how to do two plus two or something simple like that. And they were just amazed by it. And I said, now, how many have been on an airplane lately? And they all raised their hands. I said, the airplane was designed by that thing in your hand. Yeah, the navigation requirements of a pilot, especially World War II, Korean War, and all, well, Korean War, they get more into the jet age. But the navigation, especially for the bombardier and all that, it was a lot of slide rule and calculating and times versus speed and all that stuff and distance from the planet and everything. Well, you know, when I first went in the Navy, we had uh, we had very crude and elementary equipment to do a lot of the things that are done computer-wise now. And I told somebody the other day, that's why the two ships run into each other, because the old guy on the on the bridge that had the binoculars uh, doesn't seem to have any control anymore. It's all computerized. Well, before we get into your uh, Navy career, it's we're already on the topic, so let's just get the shameless plug out of the way. This episode of the What's in Your Head podcast is brought to you by our friends at At Computers. At Computers has been providing IT solutions for all of Southwest Florida since 2005, as we previously said. And right now, between January and February, give At Computers a call at 239-283-1120. Say the word podcast, and they will help you with your peace of mind. That's right. Back up your data to the Internet because with, well, encryption viruses, hijacking, hard drive crashes. Did you know a hard drive used to last about 10 years? Now they last about three because people want more for less money. So hard drives are nowhere as good as they used to be. So protect your data. Call them up. Say the word podcast. And they will back up your data online for $0.08 cents a gig per month for the entire year of 2020. Give them a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. Tell them the word podcast and get your data backed up for your computer at $0.08 cents a gig per month for the entire year of 2020. Now, Jim, as you just hinted to, you're in the Navy, but let's go back. Let's roll back a little bit. What? Where did you grow up and when did you graduate? I grew up in upstate New York. Uh in a little town called Binghamton, uh, which is known for their Johnson Shoe Company. Um, graduated in 1965, the famous class of 65, and uh, went to a little college called Broom Tech. It's a community college. Carnegie founded it. Um, graduated in 67. Um, at that time, uh, I was tutoring a a young man from Italy, his name was Frank Fatucci. And uh, the reason I was tutoring him is he was having trouble with his English and he wasn't doing well in the engineering classes. I promised him, though, that uh, he wouldn't get drafted because uh, in that day, if you were not getting a 2-0 or better, you uh, you got drafted. And uh, he, uh, he scored a, a low number and uh, didn't graduate and uh, died in combat uh, the next year. Uh, and uh, that 
that that's what started me on the quest to uh, to uh, understand Vietnam a little better. Now you said you were tutoring him because he didn't speak English well. Is that correct? Yes. Now, did you speak fluent Italian? Is your, I'm assuming your family's Italian. You're you're in New York. Did you speak fluent Italian, or was his English good enough that you guys could communicate on a uh, you know semi regular basis? Maybe half and half. I understood some of his slang, and I he understood the English well enough to get by. His reading skills were okay, but anyway, it's the point is he got drafted. Well, that that's what I was going to bring up next. It's it probably had to be. I don't know. I just. I guess I couldn't imagine being drafted into the military. One, being drafted in the military, but two, being drafted into a military that's primary and pretty much only language, at least at the time, was the language that you're having trouble to speak fluently. And it had to be frustrating, I'd imagine, for him to go through boot camp, getting yelled at, and doing all the breaking down, rebuilding up when you're not as fluent with the language and having a little bit of communication issue. And it's a little surprising. I guess they were that. Um, in dire need of recruits that they would, you know, that they were drafting people who didn't speak the language fluently. Yeah. If you look at the history, the the Tet offensive started around 67, 68. That's when it was real bad. And they were, they were out recruiting whoever and whatever that moved and, and, you know, could, could make a mirror fog up was good enough for them. Uh, He was a conscience objector, which is kind of interesting. So they put him in the medical corps, and if you know anything about the medical corps, they're the guys that uh, run in to help help other soldiers. And apparently, he uh, he got shot rescuing another uh, another uh, our, our soldier in a battle. Now, did you get drafted, or did you uh, join a service under your own on your own will? Well, the curious thing about that is that I was at the time working, uh, I got a job at Cornell as a teaching assistant. That would take us now to 68, 69. And everybody was, uh, especially at Cornell, were part of the, uh, you know, make love, not war. And, sure. And petitioning and, and running around, uh, making it real hard for, for, for people who were conscientious or at least conservative and, and wanted to, Help the war effort, um, and my instruct my my boss in, in, in odd sense of the, of the situation was Lyndon Johnson's science advisor. Huh. And uh, he brought me in the office when he found out that I was interested to try to uh, to sign up because I I did get a draft notice to the Marines, and uh, I I just knew that because I looked through the letter. Uh, through 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 uh, through the light, you could see that it was the draft board because my number was pretty low. I think it was 185 or something like that. So I walked in his office and he said, "Well, we're going to do everything we can to keep you from there." And I already had two draft two uh, two deferments. I was the only surviving son. I had a, a, a critical t- a teaching position and I was a student as well. But I said, no, I've already signed up because a friend of mine just got killed and I'm, uh, I'm feeling I'm, I'm kind of obligated. So I, I went in with a little bit of guilt at first, uh, but after boot camp and gung-ho, yeah, yeah, uh, I kind of worked myself into uh, to being a, a more of a patriot and soldier than a, than a conscience objector. Now, did a part of you feel like, um, going down and signing up on your own 
having the choice of where you're going to sign up, that kind of gave you a little bit of control in a situation that you truly didn't have any control over because it's either I go down and choose the branch and see if I can get in or I wait until I'm told where to go? Yeah, they, I walked into the Navy office because of, uh, my father was a friend of a friend and I lived in Binghamton but I, and I was working in Ithaca. If you know the, the, the map layout, Syracuse is right up the street. So we, I went to Syracuse at the draft and he, he told me to bring the letter with me and I signed right there uh, for the Navy because he told me he could get me in as a second lieutenant. I said, well, how long does a second lieutenant last in Vietnam these days? Just kind of tongue-in-cheek. He looked very seriously at me and said, oh, about anywhere from 15 to 45 minutes. Wow. Before- and I said, well, I don't think I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, That's yeah, a little bit Navy. longer of a survival than a machine gunner, so you got that <laughs> going for you. So I signed up for operations, uh, actually radar, uh, which is a technical uh, rate. Went to A school in Chicago, and I basically went to the fleet in around 69 on a new ship. In Bath, Maine, we were recommissioning a, a destroyer, a guided missile destroyer, which was going to Vietnam, and I knew that, but it was 180 days out, so uh, it gave me a little more time to take care of the family. So I got married and Moved into a trailer in Bath, Maine. And this is 1969. I want to back up a little bit. You were talking about when you're at Cornell, and you know, obviously the peace, love, and the hippie movement was whole, you know, full force back in. Looking back at it, a little retrospect, obviously, um, you're, you know, whether or not your father was, but at least your father's generation, they were what has since become the greatest generation. And but I don't think the term had been coined back then. Do you think, looking back in hindsight, a lot of the protest about the war was just that younger generation's way of kind of sticking it to their parents' generation, you know, because clearly when, when your parent, you know, such a large amount of the people of that generation went off to World War II, they had military, you know, discipline and all that, and a lot of that carried over to the family life. Do you think a lot of the protest that was going on then was, yes, it was a little bit about the, the distrust for the war and what was going on, but a little bit more to sticking it to the generation of their their parents who were you know such patriots and who went through world war ii and everything that came from that maybe that's probably one one view i think what what i saw all the time i mean my campus i was actually brought and corralled into the the staff dining room by the by the black panthers so i had a first-hand knowledge of you know protests in in general in those days just started becoming kind of cool and uh you know to the academia world they it was kind of a cool thing to do sure i mean it's a even state happened which you're aware of and uh they got you know it became a life and death situation after kent state sure so it was even more than cool it was courageous yeah because um for the younger audience who isn't aware you know Basically, the Ohio National Guard got called into Kent State for some protest, and one thing led to another, and for whatever reason, was it four or eight? Four dead in Ohio? A Neil Young song? Yeah, it was four, it was four that got killed in Kent State, wasn't it? Yes. And so now you have, I mean, kind of, obviously it's nowhere in comparison, but for the younger generation who's listening now who wants to kind of put that into a modern equivalent, kind of think back about around 2008 when... um we had a lot of the uh, police shootings and all that and the uprise about how people were feeling against, you know, police 
quote unquote, and not that I'm saying this, but this is just the feel of 2008. And a lot of people who joined that movement felt that, you know, people were unjustly getting killed by the police. Well, they're bigger scale. Now, instead of police, you actually have a form of the military at a college campus and that happens. And so I'm sure that had a lot to do with flaming the, um, the power and the fire behind all the protests and the anti-war, anti-military movement. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, the pictures on uh, Life magazine with the girl bleeding, uh, she actually died. She was laying there and somebody was asking for help and uh, she was bleeding on the on the street. It, it brought it to life. At the same time, you know, people were taking photographs of people dying in the streets of, uh, of Vietnam and, and body bags are starting to come back, you know, in a very, very, very high volume at the time. Uh, 58,000 men died in Vietnam, men and women. And uh, so, you know, a lot of body bags were coming back at the time. So I think it just fueled the fire, as you said. And so now you you, you find yourself in boot camp. You made the um, intellectual idea, hey, I don't want to be a non-commissioned officer. I don't like the lifespan of that. Um, here's something a little more conducive to what I'm good at, because um, obviously now you're an engineer. I'm sure a lot of that came from the training you have in your Navy, but I'm sure a lot just like anybody else, myself, especially, you know, a lot of the technical stuff, it's kind of, it's already in you before you ever get schooling. You know, when I was a kid, I'd tinker around VCRs and try to fix things that were broken. And I'm, I'm assuming you probably had a little bit of that in you. And then the education you got in the Navy and the radar school probably helped enforce that. But let's go back to boot camp a little bit around that time. Boot camp at, at Great Lakes in, in Illinois was a tough time. It was, uh, I don't know, I think it was 14 weeks, something like that. Sure. Temperature outside in February, March was, you know, minus whatever. <laughs> yeah, five, ten, more. <laughs> and they gave us one blanket and a sheet, and you were supposed to sleep on this, uh, you know, this rugged, you know, World War II style uh, temporary housing, which, uh, by coincidence, my dad stayed in the same building in World War II, and he was a signalman 50 years before. So. <laughs> so you're staying in the same cornice hut that your father stayed in, and there's a good chance that if uh, the Navy was that well-assembled in World War One, your your grandfather could have stayed there possibly as well. Yeah, World War Two. No, World War One. my 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 family was still in Italy. Oh, okay. Second generation. But um, what the odd part is, my son went into the uh, Navy after me in his generation, and he became a uh, weapons uh, guy on a on a nuclear uh, destroyer during uh, during Desert Storm. So my dad was World War II, I was Vietnam, and my son was Desert Storm. Um, so, you know, basically I got pneumonia uh, in boot camp, and uh, after boot camp I was uh, lost about 30 pounds, so I was pretty skinny back then. So when I went to the fleet, I was, uh, wasn't really in that great of health. But I had 120 days to deferment to uh, recover. So I reported to Bath, Maine in 69. And as you completed your, your training in Bath, Maine in 69 and you got your um, orders to go overseas, um, how long from your graduation until the point that you got shipped out did you have to uh, kind of get things in order before you left home? 120 days. 120 days? Yeah. What is that like? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's you're you're literally – yeah, yeah, you see bags in the corner of the room, and you're trying to assimilate your life with somebody you just married. It, it was it was pretty tough, um, but you know it's all part of uh, you know the sacrifices that servicemen make. Sure, 
it's not just you. It's uh, your family, your friends, your job. You know, you put your you put your career on hold. Of course, you know the the law was that if you left your job, you were supposed to get it back when you came back if you were drafted, and that didn't happen for me. Yeah. But that's a long story. That's the end of the story. But um, so you know, basically, our job in the Navy was uh, radar. When you you see a movie and they have a picture of the ship, like Battleship or any of those mm-hmm. movies, you see a destroyer. You see the guys on the screen, and they're they say CIC and the bridge and all that. I was in CIC. That's the Combat Information Center. We do everything from uh, radar for contacts. Uh, we we do fire control um, and a submarine uh, and. Um, 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 uh, basically, uh, search and rescue and things like that. What ship were you assigned to? USS Warden. It's a DLG eighteen. It's part of the reef in Hawaii now. Really? What year did they uh, turn it into an uh, artificial reef? Two thousand. That had to be a little. Um, well, I, I guess it kind of puts a, a, a cap on your time and your service. It had to be a little bit of a uh, final into the chapter. But part of you also had to think, wow, that's. That's part of my life. You can see it on YouTube, the actual, uh, uh, when they actually sink the USS Warden off the coast of Hawaii, it actually is on YouTube. And I actually had a tear in my eye when I saw it. Sure. About the fact that I lived on the thing for as long as I did. Then I was reassigned in in Vietnam because I was not on the front line at at the time, even though that ship was hit and I lost a buddy on on the ship. Um, uh, Bob Sterling, he was a bosun mate. Uh, I was reassigned because they had to go in for repairs uh, on a ship called the USS Ward, uh, USS Hammond, which is a DE. The DEs basically could go closer to shore. Their job was gunfire support, and that's what I spent almost the whole year of '72 now. Uh, on the gun line in uh, Quantree Province, which is uh, near the Haiphong River. I want to back up real quick. You said your ship had taken some damage and you lost a, a friend of yours. What type of damage was it from a, a torpedo plane? What what sort of damage did the uh, ship? Under- well, we were attacked by an OC Comark boat. They're a high-speed boat, like a PT boat. Okay. And they have a MiG-21 fuselage on both sides of the ship. They come at you at high speed, 70 knots, and then they just fire these things. And they were coming after us, and we started firing back at them. We didn't have any surface-to-surface uh, capability except the 50 cal and the AK-AK guns you used to see in World War II. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're firing at these guys, and we called in for air support, and a couple uh, F-4s came flying in, and somebody must have triggered the uh, fire control radar and. He, they were on uh, trigger finger at the time, and so we had a friendly Sparrow missile hit us on the on the on the uh, actually the forward part of the ship, and it blew up the uh, mount and the uh, bridge, and the CIC was pretty much damaged by it. You know, it's it's kind of interesting you you bring that up that you guys suffered damage from friendly fire because I think about two or three episodes back. I had the privilege to interview a couple of vets who flew in the B-17s during the war. And I, I was talking to him about how I always found it was so amazing that flying in those tight formations with all those, all those planes with the, you know, the 30 cows and the 50 cows, 
I'm sure it happened, but you don't hear too many reports of friendly fire from, you know, taking hits from the other planes in your formation, especially when you're, you know, you're trying to shoot it down Messerschmitts or, or, you know, what have you. And it always struck me as curious, like you see those movies where they're flying in such a tight formation, those guys are just lighting up the sky, how, you know, friendly fire didn't occur more, or maybe it did, and they just didn't realize that the, the holes in their plane came from, you know, another plane next to them. I think it happened very frequently. Um, you know, the Broken Arrow from uh, We Were Soldiers, where they actually ask for fire on them yeah. because the enemy is right there. Uh, other than that, I think it happened a lot. I had a lot of friends that I knew that uh, they'd call in for Howards or fire for support, and uh, they wouldn't have the coordinates right. Or, you know, we don't have GPS back then. Everything was done by maps, and how good are the maps and you know coordinates? And you have these guns that basically are line of sight type guns, howitzers and uh, cannons and and tanks. I mean, they're not uh, very accurate. Now, the ship was pretty accurate. We could fire um, pro- probably anywhere from 15 to 20 miles away and be within 50 feet of the target, usually. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the Missouri, which was right next to us, the Big Mo, they can fire a, a projectile the size of a Volkswagen, 2,000 pounds, close to 30 miles and be 50 miles accuracy, 50, 50 meters accuracy. So... Uh, the ships had pretty good, pretty accurate because you know, ship to ship type warfare, uh, so you could use it on the land as well. Uh, but but guys on 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 land using maps, I I think it happened very often. Now, um, at any point from the time you debarked from um, the states to heading over that way, did you ever cross over the equator and get to participate in that whole um, ceremony? Yeah, we w- we went down the equator. We actually went to Australia. Um, I went to the Panama Canal from Maine, so that was a three-week trip. So I've, I've, I've pretty much been around the world except for the Mediterranean. Yeah, I heard the whole crossing the equator, the whole ceremony and all that's pretty, uh, pretty interesting to behold and to be a part of. Yeah, you get all sorts of plaques and accolades. And it's like uh, fraternity raising. And so after you guys, you know, you, you, your ship took fire, you got transported to another ship, and you said you got moved to the gun line. For those who aren't familiar with that term, um, what is exactly the gun line in the Navy? Well, in the Navy, you know, when we first got there, uh, uh, it's, it was called Yankee Station. Yankee Station was um, right in the center of, um, of uh, Gulf of Tonkin. And, uh, and, and if you look at the map, if you put a dot right there in the center, that's basically where Yankee Station was. And the flotilla sat there. Uh, our flotilla included the USS Coral Sea, uh, the America, and the Enterprise, and the Hancock. So there was several aircraft carriers that were in the vicinity, and we supported them. We do plane guard, which is basically following behind when the planes land, there's always a destroyer behind them to pick up the, the pilots if they crash. Sure. Um, and uh, other of us would sit on the gun line, which is basically uh, within a thousand yards of the land. We would fire continuously. In fact, we, we, we fired continuously for 75 days at one click. Um, 
shot over 2,500 rounds of a five-inch shell, which if you think about five inches, if you make a circle five inches and then maybe like a three, two or three, two, two feet long, that's the shell that we used. Um, and it was all done uh, off the coast. When I got there, there was 12 ships. When we left, there was 500 ships. Now, when you're laying down that much fire, clearly um, your ship has to be restocked with uh, ordnance, I would assume, correct? Yeah, it's called unrepping. We basically go out to the Yankee Station, which I just mentioned, and there'd be supply ships out there, and you basically go alongside of them uh, at the same speed, and uh, they they throw lines back and forth, and they pull over uh, supplies like uh, weapons and uh, shells oil, whatever else you need, food supplies, and, the, you know, movies. We trade movies. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you, especially when you're spending that much time in a confined space as a, as a ship, you know, you, the entertainment is yeah. is, is everything. It, you got to keep that morale up. Well, during that 72 days that I mentioned, there was no entertainment. Sure. Fact, you couldn't even take a shower, and you we hot-racked it. Hot-racking is basically – giving up your bunk every four hours for somebody else um, because we didn't have the room for the personnel. And and the, the guns were constantly going off, you know, and that's, you know, one, one shot about every 30 seconds or so. And you'd be trying to sleep and you'd hear that, you know, and you hear the clicking sound of the relays inside the, inside the gun. And it'd be click, 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 and then ba-boom, the whole ship would shake. And um, you go through that for 72 days, you get a little stir crazy and, and nuts. I mean, you guys would be walking along the hall, you know, the, the, the gunaway and the alleyways and, and, uh, and just punch somebody else in the face for no particular reason, just to get your frustration out. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's that's one, 72 days, that's a long time, but I mean, that's just your head just feels like it has to be cracking open like a walnut after a certain amount of booms. Yeah, and they, and the, the, the thing about all this, Don, is they were shooting back. Yeah. Um, not only were we worried about the O.C. Komar boats, the PT boats, but the, uh, the, uh, the MiGs would come out and drop napalm on our ships to try to blow up the hydrogen fuse that we had on the, uh, on the ASROC launchers. We had missiles on the ship that could be, could be lit off if you if you hit them right with a napalm bomb. So they would come with their with their MIGs, MIG 21s at the time, and drop napalm on on the ship. So we were getting hit by motor, mortar 122 millimeter rockets. Uh, actually, the shells we'd pick up the, the the shrapnel and send it to Washington for analysis. One day we had 2,000 uh, pieces of shrapnel we took off the deck of the ship. And there was holes all through it, um, and it came back howitzer, you know, certain 144 millimeter, whatever it was. The um, so actually it was shells that were firing at us were from our own caches uh, that they would, uh, you know, they would capture. Yeah, that, and I was wondering how much old lend lease military surplus that had <laughs> we had uh, so graciously given to the russians back during the war how much of that ended up flying yeah. back at us during that time i think that's that you'll see a lot in afghanistan and uh, iraq as well yeah a lot of uh 
Yep, a lot of old uh, old artillery and all that. It's just crazy. What's interesting is that they had millimeter shells, the Russian supplied shells, which actually could be fired in our howitzers because we were mil- we were inches, and ours were smaller than theirs, so they could uh, the, the the they could fire the, the their military cash through our weapons, uh, and they would do so. Now, during that seventy-two days, did your, uh, with the exception of the, um, you know, the shrapnel, you said you're pulling off the decks from um, the airburst and all that. Did you guys take any other um, semi-major hits that uh, was concerning to, as far as the uh, health of your vessel? Uh, yeah, we were. Uh, hit, there was a barrage and a, and a firefight, which uh, there was another ship named the Higby, H-I-G-B-E-E. He was hit by one of those napalms that I mentioned by a. A MIG. The two MIGs we fired at, and actually the ship, the warden and the Truxton, were near us at the time. They shot the two MIGs down, but in the meantime, they started a uh, magnesium fire on the Higby. Uh, and it blew up the, the main mount. And there was, I don't know, 14, 15 guys uh, were casualties, and we had to tow them into Subic Bay because they uh, they couldn't go on their own power. So, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty rough. You don't hear about the Navy being in the in the rough of it, but believe me, we <laughs> well, we we were all suffering it. Well, to be honest with you, I was actually thinking about that before we did the show today. I was I was actually going to open up our interview with saying, hey, you know, one thing Hollywood hasn't talked about as far as Vietnam era goes is the the Navy battles and, you know, you watch military channel, all that, when it comes to Vietnam, you very, very seldomly with the exception of obviously the, the planes and the dogfights and all that, you rarely see compared to world war two, you know, Navy battle stuff. And I was going to say, what was it like to serve in the Navy during Vietnam? But, um, that's definitely glossed over a lot by the, uh, at least by the mainstream production companies and movie sets, as far as, what happened to you know to the navy during vietnam there's a lot of stuff about world war ii and and all that but even when it comes to the korean war there's very little um talking about the navy because not only did you guys fight but once again you're you're essentially the piece of america that's off the coast of wherever we're fighting i mean you're you're the closest thing we are to home uh, we also did rescue uh, missions. Um, uh, a pilot was down. We went in and rescued the the pilot, and one of our guys was shot when we were rescuing the the, the pilot. Uh, we also had uh, I sent you a picture of the Hilo Huey uh, 03 that I sent you uh, went down. Um, that had the, the the captain, the exec, and the, uh, the admiral of the Seventh Fleet on board. And uh, so we had to rescue them, and that was at 2 in the morning, uh, re- you know, taking them out of the water. Uh, one of them was, was, uh, was, uh, was, was a casualty, an exec, I think it was the exec. And from that time on, they weren't allowed to have the exec and the CO with the same, the same uh, airplane. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. It was kind of risky to have so much yeah. brass in one, one vehicle. So. After that incident, they stopped it, so the new uh, – the new edict was that uh, they couldn't fly together on any meetings that they had. The meetings they were they were uh, doing on the in, in Indianapolis uh, was was uh, to to mine the Haiphon Harbor, which is the third thing that we did, which was do a mining um, harbors and going in harm's way in these harbors was uh, was a little tricky because uh, the Chinese 
didn't feel bad at all about running into us with their uh, little fishing boats. That happened often. Well, were they kind of like uh, nautical equivalent to uh, kamikazes? Yeah, they just they just come in and run into you and jam up your uh, propeller with uh, with uh, fishing nets. I mean, strange things like that. They'd throw their bungee sticks up on the deck and you know they would they would follow the aircraft carriers to get the garbage that come off the back of them. Sure. You know, it's it, there was a lot of things that went on. I don't I don't know if any of it would be movie you know movie uh, ready, but um, Certainly, you know, 60, 70% of the pilots were Navy pilots. Yep. Um, and certainly we had uh, the equivalent of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, uh, SEAL teams. They were called UDT, or under, Underwater Demolition, So, and the Black Berets. I mean, a lot of those guys were, were Navy, and, and most of the uh, corpsmen were, were Navy. Well, absolutely. Now, you're, you're – you now during your whole time you were still you were still assigned in the radar room correct yeah cic we were oper- we were changed to os we, they changed our rate to os which is operations specialist i think it still is today but basically the job is operations of the ship so anything that had to do with the operations it's navigation um, gunfire uh, you know air support air, air control Anything to do with a radar or navigation. Now, obviously, when you're inside the vessel, um, you're a little more protected from the shrapnel and, and, and things of that nature. But psychologically wise, you know, you, you're there on the radar. You see it coming before it comes. Um, and obviously, you can only see it through the radar, but you don't have the visual components as someone who's on the deck and all that. What is it like psychologically um, when you're in the, the middle of it, when you have those planes coming in trying to drop napalm on you, you got howitzer shells coming in and all that stuff, are you just busy in work mode and the severity of the situation doesn't come to you? Or what's it like being inside where you don't visually see what's going on? Well, I, I actually have PTSD from all that. Uh, I don't remember a lot of it, Don, just like guys in combat. Sure. Uh, we were in combat. Um, the same sort of ills that you suffer on the when people are shooting bullets and you're, you can hear the bullets go over you, uh, we could constantly hear shrapnel hit the deck. It kind of looked, sounds like na- uh, like hail hitting a tin roof. Um, and, you know, you suddenly realize that that quarter inch of aluminum, actually the superstructure of a Navy ship is aluminum. People don't realize that. They see it. It looks pretty solid. Mm-hmm. It, it's aluminum where, where I was sitting. Uh, we had a mortar apparently land. Uh, some of the guys on Facebook now that I have connected with, which we didn't have before, uh, have told me stories that I couldn't remember. It's bringing back some good and some bad memories. One of them was that a mortar hit just outside CIC, blew a hole in the wall, and, and apparently I and a couple other guys, after we got up off the floor, got back on our screens and back to duty. I mean, uh, yeah, we we had a job to do, and it didn't really matter too much about what was going on. You know, you don't have people running. You just have people maybe ducking behind the radar screen. <laughs> well, I know for those listening at home, it may have sounded like a little bit of a weird question to ask it that way, but um, this is a little off topic, but the reason I came up with that question is we know 
from living in Florida and people who live in the Midwest, a lot of times the people who get injured during hurricanes or tornadoes are people who they have the overwhelming desire to watch because I've lived through five hurricanes. And to me, it's scarier being in the built in the house with the windows boarded up. You can't see outside. You can't see what's going on. And you'll hear people get injured in tornadoes because they, it's, it's not as quote unquote scary to see it opposed to being locked in a dark room and not know what's going on. And so people open up their doors or their windows and they want to see what's going on. Cause it's, it's psychologically less scary. And then that's how damage gets caused our house or death occurs. And that's kind of the reason why I asked or staged it the way I did about being inside of the CIC in front of the radar. One, not only on radar, you see it coming before it gets there, but you, you really don't visually know how severe it is outside of, of where you're at and all the action going on. That's kind of why I phrased it the way I did, because I know just from living through hurricanes, it's less unsettling to be able to look out a window and see what's going on, opposed to being in a boarded up house and not have no idea what's going on outside. Well, if you're, if you're at general quarters, you weren't allowed to, to go anywhere, but your duty station. Sure. Now that included signalmen. They were up on, on the deck, which, you know, they had to have the flak jackets and the helmets and the whole bit. So they could see if there was an incoming. Uh, in fact, we snuck out one day, and I had a friend, uh, a mate, go out with his camera and try to take a picture of an incoming. <laughs> and I'm laughing because he was taking it through the ship gunnel, you know, the, the, the window on the side yeah. of the ship with it open. He's, he's got the camera outside the, the window taking a picture of incoming. And one hit the ship, and, and uh, it it sawed off his little finger, <laughs> and he wanted to get the Purple Heart for that. But anyway. I didn't um, see it going that way. I thought you were going to say he dropped the camera overboard. but <laughs> no, 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 he got the picture. But um, uh, so, yeah, we, we got to watch once in a while. We had a thing called the Big Eyes. It's a huge uh, – you might have seen them on some ships. They're these huge binoculars that sit on a on like a, a, a what a machine gun would sit on. And you could actually look through there. And one day I went up there when we were only a thousand yards out, and I watched as the uh, enemy troops were coming out of uh, these bunkers, out of holes behind the our line. As our guys were trying, were were you know going one way, they were coming the other way and coming behind them. And I wanted to get that you know uh, message to them that they had enemy right at their tail and. Um, so I, I ran downstairs to down down below where the gunfire support, and I said, "Hey, I, I've got a coordinate of where these enemy uh, fighters are. Are you guys interested?" And they said, "Sure." And they showed me how to put the coordinates in the in the gun, and handed me the the stick, and said, "Here, the red button. Just push that when we tell you." And I pushed the button, and I heard the boom, and uh, apparently I had a, a tank or a half track, and uh, nice. Uh, a while afterwards, uh, there was this Zodiac boat coming out with the lieutenant. We had an AK-47. He was awarding to the ship to thank us for uh, helping the, the particular battle he was in. So, you know, it, it was it was even though we were in the room and CIC, it was very personal. Sure. You know, we, we, we got personal with the pilots and the Marines and the other guards that were involved. You know, I mean, uh, we were all in the same – same team. Yeah, because regardless where your duty station is, at the end of the day, you're still a thousand yards off the shore. You're still in the same danger, and you know you're you're putting your life in the same risk. So I absolutely. 
Yeah, and if you ask any any Marine, you know, what he thought about the Navy, you know, that none of them would ever say, well, they had an easy, cush job. They knew what we were doing. One of the things that I commonly say on this podcast, obviously, because we have a lot of World War II reenactors on here and living historians, and yeah, we can uh, wear the um, reproductions of the uniforms and we can quote unquote walk a mile in the shoes but one thing we're so lucky for is we don't have to experience the true horrors of war not the and just and we're talking about we opened the show with technology and talking about you know your son was in the navy during uh, the gulf war and all that we're talking about the advancement of technology and i think one of the benefits of the speedy advancement of technology is when it comes to our military and the fact that technology allows us to not have to put as many physical lives in the way of danger as we once had to. I mean, yeah, we still put boots on the ground, but not nowhere near the the numbers we have to because we are able to um, perform those jobs from a better distance, a safer distance. Yeah, unfortunately, my son was in the fire control, and he, um, he was on a, a ship, the USS South Carolina. And they were nuclear powered, which talk about technology. They were the latest and greatest. They had a leak on board, and 60, 70% of the men that served on that ship have some sort of cancer wow. or ailments. Yeah. You know, that's one thing you rarely hear about is any sort of containment leak from the, the nuclear power that runs those, those vessels. And, i be honest with you, that's probably one of the first times I've actually heard of an issue that resulted in such a large, uh, you know, effect on the crew. You know, they scrapped the, the ship right away to hide it. But, yeah, it's one of those secrets that, you know, is kept, you know, kept under the under the radar for most most uh, most Americans don't realize that how dangerous it is to, to serve in any function in the military immediately. How many guys have gone down in these training exercises yeah. we heard about in the last few weeks, you know? And I got a son going in uh, ROTC, um, my my girlfriend's son, ROTC, and he's he's signing up as a ranger. And, you know, I, I try not to talk about <laughs> what's going on, but now with Iran, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think we're headed for another conflict here pretty soon. Yeah, my nephew just went off to Army boot camp uh, two weeks ago before all this, pardon the pun, blew up. Yeah, yeah. And so. my uh, other nephew was thinking about going into the Navy. Um, he was going to school for welding, and he was his father was a Marine, and uh, or is a Marine, and he was considering going into the Navy and not only doing the, uh, the normal Navy stuff, but trying to get into the uh, welding side of that as well, and Perhaps yeah, that would be, be part of the CBs. Yeah, that, that's a, that's a good rate to to get because it's you know welders are, are in short supply, mm-hmm. especially aluminum welders, especially um, nautical underwater and all that stuff too. Yeah, well, I assume that's what you meant. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, now we talked about your seventy-two days and this and that. At any point during your service, um, you were talking about how you've traveled around the world. Did you have any chances, obviously during war and uh, during a conflict, it's you know those these opportunities aren't they're, they're few and far between. But did you have any chances to do any sort of R and R anywhere that uh, stands out in your memory? Was there any sort of downtime, or was because of the conflict and what was going on, were you constantly at it? If you have any Westpac 
which is what it's called, um, sailors out there on the line to hear hear this. If I mention Subic Bay, you'll get a smile. <laughs> Subic Bay was uh, where all the prostitutes and bars were. And, uh, yeah, we used to get the R&R um, maybe three, four times. Uh, we went to Hong Kong Harbor as well. Uh, tried to get in there, but a but a, a typhoon came along, and I didn't get a chance to go there. But so I, I really uh, my Navy time was uh, a lot of battle fatigue and not much fun. Speaking of typhoons, and and we were talking earlier about hurricanes. Um, were I guess obviously you have huge storms out there, but you're on large vessels, but. Was lightning strike on a vessel, was that a, a concern? Did it have any negative impact on the equipment at the time, or was that sort of well-engineered out of the problems? Of- it's well-engineered. They have uh, lightning uh, rods that are you know, on the ship, especially near our communication devices. But we, uh, we went, I went through two, two typhoons, one in Cape Hatteras on the Warden where we hit 70-knot winds, and we, uh, we had – we had what was called green water on the bridge. What that means is when the wave is so high that you get the bottom of the wave, not the top of it. Wow. Not the white water, but you get the green water. So uh, we were hit with a typhoon at 70 knots, and we went over 45 degrees. Now, most of, these, most of these destroyers, people that, that is not in the news ever either. Sure. But a lot of times, you know, well, there's, there's history in the Navy of – of destroyers rolling over totally, you know, 180 degrees. Uh, we went 45 degrees, 50 degrees actually. And we spent, Oh, I'd say a half hour on the side of the ship. Oh, absolutely. So during that time you were walking on the bulkheads and you have to yell at somebody to open the door. If you're going into a compartment. (laughs) Yeah. Cause I would imagine at that point when you're, you're getting that sort of angle, did they automatically kind of, prepare you know coordinating off certain parts of the ship in case of leakage or anything like that or was it just oh yeah we're batting down the hatches yeah you batten them down and everything is closed up and you you actually have a rope that's put along the the side rails you don't go outside sure um uh, there's some guys that have to but um we, we we didn't and um in fact when i was at the radar scope you have to put a a strap like a seatbelt around you to hold yourself from falling over. And I found out what those white caps were for. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just odd they still use the color white, but sure. Yeah, we, we'd hand the cap to a, a guy that was, wasn't on watch, and he'd go clean it out for you and bring it back to you while you're underway. It was, uh, it, you know, I think a lot of times these captains like to go through that just to shake the crews down and see how the ship survives yeah find out who the real sailors are yeah that's how you get your sea legs i guess it's just to me you know the the navy side especially the the guys who get assigned to submarines and all that it's just if to be on a small even i mean yes i say small they're, they're rather large but to be confined to a certain you know a particular enclosed area especially for 72 days with non-stop firing and and return fire and all that just i couldn't even imagine it i don't know how i did it of course we're all you know 19 18 19 20 21 
So, you know, I mean, you're pretty indestructible at those, those ages. So uh, what year did your tour end up? 75. I was, um, I was, I was active duty until my midnight that night that I, I was signed up for. They took me to another ship across from one of those waste things you've ever seen at those chairs to another ship. And then they, uh, helicopter, uh, helicopter me off to uh, Clark air, air force base, which isn't even there now. And, um, I was done. Went to my reserve duty then, back in my hometown. What was it? What was that like when you came home compared to when you, before you left, as far as um, culture-wise and just you know? Well, they were still they were still spitting on on soldiers, so we were told not to, that we were not allowed to wear our uniforms, especially dress uniforms. And um, I I told them to go to hell, and I wore my uniform with with all my medals hanging off and a whole bit. Um, their attitude was pretty much the same, that we were baby killers. And so when I got out, it was actually 70, 73 from active duty to my inactive duty, which is two years, so through to 75. Um, I was real careful where I wore my uniform. And what what year did it finally, uh, obviously the, the protests and all that ended in the late 70s, but I mean some of that, that animosity, I'm sure, still hung around through the early '80s and all that. It, what around what time did it kind of? I don't want to say okay, but where you're just like, I don't give a shit anymore. I'm going to talk about it. I'm I'm proud. I'm, obviously, you're proud of it then too. But I guess I when did it become less of a faux pas or a social danger to uh, to acknowledge the fact that you were there and that you served? Well, I say to people that basically I haven't felt uh, comfortable about wearing my Vietnam hat until after Desert Storm. So after the guys were coming back from, from Iraq and in, in, then now Afghanistan, it gave credibility to the soldier. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so now I'm honored. In fact, uh, very, very often if I wear my hat, I usually don't, but when I do, if I go to a grocery store or something and I have my Vietnam hat on, I've had people walk all the way across the parking lot sure, and uh, shake my hand. And um, um, they'll get choked up. <laughs> well, it was a long time coming, I mean, to see the things you saw, to lose the friends that you've lost – and to come home and just have ignorant assholes just being completely shitty to you, it's just, it's just fucked up. I mean, well, I get choked up because that's the healing process that yeah. we're all going through. I mean, uh, all the Vietnam vets was a four million of us served, you know, at that time. Two percent went through some sort of com- combat, so that's still a large number of men who experienced combat action, whether you're Army, Navy, Marines, or Air Force, uh, or even Coast Guard. CBs. CBs, or Navy. Um, you know, that there's healing that's still going on because we were not only not recognized by, um, you know, our enemy, uh, we weren't recognized by the American public. Acknowledged. Yeah. We had sacrificed what we did for a war which we basically won in our minds 
but lost it in the minds of the American citizen. Yeah, and it, it has to hurt, too, to think all the life lost and all the effort and energy and to put into the Vietnam War only to have it end the way it did as far as our political side and just pulling out at the last minute to a bad deal that uh, the other parties didn't keep up their end of the deal and just the way the whole thing ended. Well, if we would con- you know, continue, in fact, one of the generals of the um, North Vietnamese said, we, don't know, we didn't understand why you guys stopped. But if you continued on only for another 30, 60, 90 days, we would have surrendered. Um, and you know what that may, how that makes me feel. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they would be a republic now instead of a, a Chinese uh, communist. Yeah, I think it's semi-fair to say that the Vietnam War is when um, a lot of the power was taken away from the military leaders and taken over by the politicians and the people running things and the popular opinion at home. And as sadly, you know, we still see parts of it. You know, we saw it in Gulf War and all that. You know, the news coverage seemed to have some impact and the media is constantly wanting more information. It's like, we're not going to give you our secrets. So the enemy knows what's going on. But it seems to me from the outside looking, I was born in 78. So, you know, and, um, but it definitely feels like that's when, um, the politicians tried to lead more, but not in the favor of which the military is wanting to go. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, we, we, you know, I, I go to the VA, you know, once a month. In fact, I got to get there in the next, next week. Um, and I, I, I talk to vets when, when, when they want to talk and you, they're as, they're as closed mouth as, as they are. If you see them on the street uh, at the VA, even though all of us, you know, have a mutual uh, understanding of what we went through, uh, they all basically say the same thing. We won the war in Vietnam. We lost it in public opinion back home. And you're from, you know, at least as of right now, your generation is the last generation to actively fight communism. Yeah, that's true. I mean, obviously we did in World War II. We did it in Korean War. We did it in Vietnam. What's it like being from that generation who is actively there fighting communism to see how um, popular opinion about socialism and communism has kind of flamed up over the last eight years or so? Well, it angers me to see the movement in in the Democratic Party in Congress right now. Um, CAOC and those people will be the spokesmen for the, the extreme left, which that's what they are. Um, it angers me. I mean, anybody that was military in those days is going to be angry because we fought against it. You know, we didn't just vote against it. We fought against it, you know, because it's a cruel, cruel place. You know, I had somebody at, take me to dinner one time just to simply ask me one question. What the hell was I doing killing people in Vietnam? And I said to him very simply, I said, because of the likes of people like Pal Pot and, and Lenin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they kind of look at you blank stare because they don't know what I'm 
talking about and therein lies the problem it's ignorance it's funny you brought that up because i was i was waiting for my turn to talk because i'm sitting there thinking isn't it ironic that it's the quote-unquote the idol the idol ideologues and the educated people who are so ignorant when it comes to the facts and the numbers behind communism and socialism it's it always seems to be the people who find who find themselves to be quote you know smarter smartest person in the room or they've spent all these years reading and they're on the educational side, but they're so damn ignorant on the truth about about that. They're lazy. They don't go to Google and say, you know, who are the greatest criminals ever, and they'll get those names. They'll get Lenin, uh, Pell Pot, um, you know, um, Marx. You know, you'll get, you'll get names of people, and, and the numbers are staggering. When you think about Stalin alone was what, I don't know, 10 million um, Hitler was what eight million. So you know when you think about the fact that the communist regimes actually killed more people than the Nazis, and they go, huh? And that's their ignorance. They yeah. don't realize what what people uh, lived through in only uh, fifty years ago. You know, I was saying on my one of my other podcasts the other day that um, anytime somebody wants to compare anyone to Hitler in an argument, I just tune out. Because that just tells me they don't have any facts about the person they're complaining about. The only if you want to compare compare anybody to Hitler in a conversation, with me maybe Stalin. I'll listen to you and Mussolini because Stalin had his own version of his his version of the, the um, final solution. Thank God he died of his heart attack when he did because he was just as bad, if not worse, than Hitler. We just kind of had to, you know, use him to get the job done. But it's just so insane. Anytime anybody has a ideological difference between what they believe and somebody else, they, they automatically want to compare that person to Hitler. It's like, once you do that, I'm done with the conversation because you clearly don't have any uh, facts or evidence about the person you're railing against now that, because once again, with the exception of, you know, Stalin or Mussolini, there's no one you can compare to that son of a bitch. Yeah. If you go and Google and get the list of the 25, um, the list is, is, you know, goes from Herod the great, all the way to uh, modern times. You got Saddam Hussein, um, Pope Alexander, <laughs> Omar Gaddafi, um, um, you know, and then the more modern times. And yeah, that you know, everybody likes to talk about Hitler, but quite frankly, he 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 comes somewhere in the middle of the list. Yeah. Um, not to say it wasn't any less uh, tragedy. Sure. When we, yeah, you said uh, I, I hadn't thought about that when you said that Vietnam is the last time we personally fought communism, but that's true. Yeah, because all the all the conflicts we're now it's a you know we're fighting another idealism, but it's not communism. It's extreme, you know, Muslims and and all that stuff. But um, I it's just I was I I. One, you keep talking about Google, and I'm thinking, well, how sad, you know, probably another 20 years, that information won't show up on Google because some of the way their the, their people think, you know, they want to cover that stuff up too. And I and I brought this up, and it, I always find it interesting to ask, you know, especially people who participated in history. Uh, as a history buff, and I sit in my podcast studio, and over my left shoulder I got a bunch of books, I find it's very important to maintain hard copies of history if you want to digitize your fiction books and you you know all the self-publishing you know fear you know a lot of it's digitized 
less and less books are actually getting put in print. It's all just put out there in PDF format on the internet or on your Kindles and, and all the digital stuff. But I think it's of un, unmentionable importance to maintain hard copies of our history because a digital version is just way too easy to edit and save. Yeah. No. That's why Brokaw, you know, took the greatest generation and started taping them because I think you need to start videotaping and podcasting like you're doing. People that have been there because quite frankly, you know, all of us are getting in their seventies now. Yep. And uh, we're losing our World War Two guys, what, thirty thousand a week or some ridiculous number like that? Yeah, it's getting harder and harder to uh track down guys. Um a few months ago, I was lucky enough to do two within a few weeks, but um, one of the gentlemen I interviewed, he was, I was actually interviewing him from his room in hospice. Yeah. And so, um, you know, you find guys now who are 92, 93, but they're basically there doing police work because the, the war is pretty much wrapped up at that point. But yeah. yeah. It, usually if I see the World War II hat in the VA, I usually walk up and introduce myself because – they always have a story, you know, and and, and you fewer and fewer and fewer, and that's what's happening with the the next war, which is Korea, mm-hmm. and then the next war after that is Vietnam. So we're starting to see less and less the Korean guys, which are basically guys that were in World War II as well. They usually serve both. Yeah, what's interesting is we, we speak with a lot of uh, living historians and World War II reenactors on this podcast, and one of the things that's been getting more and more, um, I don't want to say popular, but happening more and more over the last eight years is now, um, you know, because a lot of these reenactors, they reenact the era of their grandfathers. And so like a lot of the World War II reenactors, they're either the grandchildren or the sons or the great-grandchildren of those who fought in uh, World War II. But a lot of guys and a lot of younger kids are getting into the uh, doing Vietnam representation. They'll actually set up tents and actually have vietnam air gear out so when people come to the museums or to the event that we're doing not only can they come experience the world war ii uniforms and the technology of the day but there are guys who are going out and tracking down the vietnam era and the, obviously the korean war era stuff too so that all everybody's represented at these these museums and these events so it's not just you know the civil war and world war ii stuff now it's getting into vietnam and even some guys are dipping their toes in the gulf war stuff well we just had the uh, the portable wall uh, come here uh, about a month ago, and uh, they set it up at the stadium. And that, that helps because it brings people to see 50,000 names and see 58,000 names and see what that looks like when you lay them all out. It's it's pretty amazing and uh, gives people an education firsthand. I met the guy that does that. He travels around. It's funded by a uh, an organization that sets up the wall. And um, he goes, he goes city to city, and they they announce it when they're coming. And he's he's got he he personally had three Purple Hearts. He quite a guy. Yeah, that's the nice thing about living in Southwest Florida is we have a lot of military monuments, and a lot of them are forgotten about or unknown. Um, you're talking about the portable section of the Vietnam Wall coming. Yeah. Well, we have a permanent little tiny version of that right off McGregor. Um, if you go downtown Fort Myers, we actually have a statue right there off of uh, First Street near the Edison Bridge that I just stumbled across one day running of a uh, 82nd Airborne soldier in full mm-hmm. gear. Um, you know, so 
it's nice that, especially here at Cape Coral and Cape Coral Parkway, you have the Southwest Florida Military Museum and Library, and they they um, have that program where they hang up photos of service personnel who either lived in Cape Coral or from Cape Coral all along Cape Coral Parkway. And obviously, we have Veterans Boulevard, and we have the Iwo Jima statue, and they're continuing to put more monuments of not just World War II, but Gulf War and um, Vietnam War over there as well. And I think they just recently... Um, Opened up a uh, navy, um, a navy-based memorial over there. Did they? I didn't know that. Yeah, when you drive down Veterans now, right next to the Iwo Jima statue, you'll see a big, um, oh, prop off of a navy vessel. It's been bronze. Oh yeah, yeah, I did see that. Yeah, I did. Um, yeah, and that, it really that also irks me when I hear about these movements where they're trying to take the monuments down and all of this history. They're they're trying, I guess, in Richmond to take the Lee Monument down. Well, and obviously we live in Lee County and we face that all the time. Um, but, and I've brought this up before. What they don't realize is one, regardless of what your opinion is on that monument, not all monuments are memorialization as far as positive. It's you know, no one's going to say the Auschwitz Museum is a positive thing. It's a it's a reminder of the horrible things that can happen. But not only that, and we see it now. Obviously, we hear stories over the last ten years and that of people over in the Middle East who are trying to say, "Oh, the Holocaust never happened." They're called Holocaust deniers. Well, if we take down all of our Civil War statues and all of our Civil War monuments, who's going to say seventy years from now there's going people say, "Oh, well, Civil War never happened," because we're yeah. we're taking down all the reminders. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I did reenactments for a while. I was a second lieutenant, cavalry. I've got all the guns and the uniform and the swords and the whole bit because I think it's important that we still do reenactments, keep people to understand what this country and how it built the, the way this country is. Yeah, and sadly, the ongoings of pop culture and in the case of Florida, mass shootings, believe it or not, those have a effect on our history as well. Um, after all the nonsense with the uh, guys with the tiki torches and the, uh, the marching that happened last year, there were certain states who were trying to el- eliminate civil war reenactments because you can't have a civil war reenactment without certain flags, and those flags trigger people. Um, here in the state of Florida, ever since um, the Pulse nightclub mass shooting and a few of the other ones, um, you can't have – we used to have weapons demos on the Florida state parks. We'd, we'd go and set up our living history events, you know, or set up our tents and our gear, and we'd get together. Okay, at 1230, everybody meet over here. We're going to do weapons demos, show people what an M1 Garand sounds like, M1 carbine, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think it was last year the state of Florida said no brass – firing on any of the state parks so that means we can't fire any of our blanks only thing that can be used is a uh, black powder uh. so the, the civil war guys can still do it but um basically world war one and older nope no more weapons demos it's a different world isn't it well and sadly you know yes reenactors like us we you know we do it more than just a weapons demo but sadly with when it comes to the public especially nowadays with the need of uh hands-on entertainment a lot of people don't want to show up if they don't hear the boom boom bang bang yeah it's true and so that affects our ability to teach history well his name's jim marino he served in the navy during vietnam his grandfather served before him and his son after him jim thank you so much for your time thank you for stopping by our podcast and uh, sharing your, your little bit of history and and getting the word out there about uh, serving in the Navy, because as we said earlier, 
at least when it comes to pop culture, movies, and TV shows, and even video games for that matter, very, very little has been uh, shined upon what it was like to serve in the Navy during Vietnam. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. Thank you so much, sir, and I hope you have a great 2020, and thank you so much for your time. You too. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 